Father, we uh, have been busy going about our business um, today, uh, this week. Uh, Some of us are retired, and we have put in many, many years. And we, uh, we have some time on our hands that for years and years and years we didn't have, and we're able to spend time, more time with grandchildren and with family, and we're grateful for that. Um, most of us are still working and providing and meeting obligations. I'm reminded in Psalm 127, the psalmist made the statement, unless the Lord builds the house, they who labor, labor in vain. We spend our lives working. We spend our our lives laboring. We spend our lives trying to provide, and quite frankly, it is... uh, We don't talk about this a lot, but it's a heavy weight. It's a great responsibility. We're mindful of it. We live in a culture where um, it's it's tragic that uh, so many people feel entitled. Your word, uh, Paul was very clear, if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. And uh, now we have always felt and you've taught us that if someone is, has a disability, if someone is set aside, obviously we're there to help and to assist in whatever way we can. And quite frankly, Lord, that, as you have set it up, is not the government's job, it's the church's job. But we are living in a culture where um, there is this entitlement. But th- that is not what you tell us to do. You want us to work, you want us to be productive. You said in Thessalonians that we are to strive and work to lead a quiet life and to work with our hands. You said if a man doesn't provide for his own, he's worse than an unbeliever. So this is what we do, Lord. We work and we work hard. And it's a, it's a burden, it's a weight, but um, we're being productive. But we are mindful, even as we work, that unless the Lord builds the house, unless you're at work, unless you're assisting, unless we're dependent on you, all of our labor is in vain. Because, Lord, we're just not working to provide on this earth. Uh, You have called us to labor and to provide spiritually and to lead our homes and to lead our families. So we do that by following you. We do that by listening to your word, by studying it, by then asking your help for us to apply it. And you called each man to lead. Uh, we, we are aware of our own weaknesses. We're aware, deeply aware of our own flaws, of our own uh, failures in the past. We are so grateful tonight as we continue down the path of following you and, and being obedient to your word and seeking to fulfill our responsibilities, which you have given to us, we are so thankful for, the, for your grace. We're thankful for forgiveness. We're thankful that we're not in this by ourselves. We're thankful for your provision. We're thankful for health. We, quite frankly, Lord, we are dependent upon you every waking moment for everything. We are utterly and totally dependent. 
how grateful we are that you are there, how grateful we are that you neither slumber nor sleep, that you give to your beloved even in their sleep. Lord, there's just points we, we just drop off. We just can't go anymore. And even when we're even when we're unaware, you're giving and you're providing and you're making a way. So we say thank you. We thank you. Um, it's so easy to get overly burdened by all of this stuff. But you told us, cast all of your care upon him because he cares for you. We're grateful that you really do care and you really do come through time after time after time after time. We honor you and praise you. Teach us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this uh, series we're, we kicked off last week, we're calling uh, Psalms for the Trail. And last week we mentioned the fact that uh, Jesus said there are two trails in life. In Psalm 16, the psalmist said um, that you will make clear to me the path of life. And we, we made the, the statement, and we took a little time on the word path, because, um, you know, the word path is everywhere in the Scripture. Uh, you see the word path. Sometimes you see the word way. Sometimes you see the word road. And, you know, to be more specific, there's not just one path of life. There are two paths of life. Jesus said in Matthew 7, and this is just a little bit of review. Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 13 to 14, he said, broad is the road, broad is the way, broad is the path that leads to destruction. This is the, uh, the road that we all start out on because we're all sinners, the Bible says. Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Um, we're on the wrong path. We're going the wrong direction to the wrong destination. Jesus said, broad is the road that leads to destruction. So we all start out on the wrong road, on the wrong path in rebellion to God because we're sinners. But at a certain point, through the grace of God, uh, we hear the gospel, the Spirit of God regenerates us, and we call out to Christ, we believe the gospel, we ask Him to be our Savior, to forgive us of our sins. We understand that He took our sins upon Him, and that He died in our place, that He was that he died, that he, buried, he was buried, he rose on the third day. This is 1 Corinthians 15. And now we begin to follow Christ. And when we begin to follow Christ, he switches our trail. And now we're on the next trail that he mentions in Matthew 7. He says, broad is the road that leads to destruction, but narrow is the gate that leads to life, and few are those who find it. So when we come to Christ, we find ourselves on a different path, on a different trail. Uh, it's not a popular trail. It's... Uh, when you start following Christ, you should know that you will always be going upstream. The, the days of, uh, of quietly floating down uh, a quiet river on an inner tube, those days are over. 
if you ever had them. Uh, the Christian life is a hard life. Now, the life without Christ is a harder life because the Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard. It just flat out is. But Jesus made it very clear in Matthew 17, there are two trails. There's the broad road, and once again, the broad road, where does it go? Well, it leads to destruction. So at some point, you got to start thinking about the road you're on. Uh, but narrow is the gate that leads to life. And we made the statement last week that the, the secular person, the secular individual, the thing that makes them secular is that they think this world is all there is, and Jesus was very clear that this world is not all there is. There is another world. Absolutely clear. There is a heaven and there is a hell. And we are all deserving of judgment. We're all deserving of hell. But out of grace and mercy, Christ came. He died in our place. If we believe in him, we do not pass in the judgment because our judgment was put on him. He was the sin bearer. He died in our place for our sins. So when we start following Christ, we are forgiven and we receive eternal life. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not as a result of works, any man should boast. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Uh, we are given eternal life. Now here's the deal. When you trust in Christ, uh, there's a lot of misconceptions. When you trust in Christ, you don't get eternal life when you die. When you trust in Christ alone and ask him to be your savior, and you're regenerated by the Holy Spirit, that's when you get eternal life. So if you've trusted in Christ alone as your Savior, you're walking around, you've got eternal life. It's not that you get it when you graduate. You've got it now. It's a gift. It's amazing. It's amazing. Okay. So those are the two trails. The broad road that leads to destruction, but the narrow gate that leads to life. Now, now here's what I want to do tonight. In a sense... There's a third trail. It's, it's really not a third trail. It's sort of a bypass. But um, what this is, is uh, it's a shortcut. Shortcuts are always used by the enemy as a way of diverting men who are following Christ on the narrow road as an attempt to get them off the narrow path. I'm going to start tonight with a verse out of Proverbs 14. Um, very short, very brief, very concise. Proverbs 14, 12, Solomon writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, there is a trail or there is a path that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Um, shortcuts. We're all interested in shortcuts. Um, my wife and I have discussions uh, as we're driving somewhere. And these are discussions I don't enjoy. I try to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, 
but uh, she is obviously not walking under the control of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> she's asking questions she has no business asking. And suddenly we've got a little tension in the car. Uh, why did you turn that way? Um, someone said, wow, I heard that. And your wife says the same thing. Yeah, there's a class women go to, and they, they, yeah, anyway. Uh, anyway, it's just kind of interesting. But I have this thing. I have, I have a way from my house of getting to the airport, and I don't get on the Broadway. I, I'm biblical. I go the narrow road. And there are fewer of those who find it, let me tell you. I got a back way, and I've timed it, and I know how many stoplights are on that 2499 going south to the airport, and then I got a back way. And I'm just telling you, it works. Now, I don't know why I brought that up, but I feel better. There's, I guess there's obviously some resentment that's still seething under the surface here. Um, it's kind of a shortcut. But you know, you've got to be really, in the Christian life, you've got to really watch shortcuts. Probably the most, uh, one of the most famous shortcuts ever taken was in 1846 by a group of farmers coming out of Illinois going to California. And the head of that group of uh, well-meaning men who loved their families and were looking for a new start, uh, that man's last name was Donner. And, uh, you know, they were just trying to do the right thing, and they ran into a man at a certain point before they hit the Sierras in California, and this man told them that uh, he, had discovered a, he had discovered a quicker way into California across those mountains. His name was uh, Lansford Hastings. He told them about a shortcut to California, and uh, he was very, very persuasive. So they, uh, they decided as a group, let's, let's go this way. Um, almost, uh, almost didn't survive the desert, which they had to go through. Then they, um, they were late getting into the passes. Um, and that particular year, the snowfall was extremely heavy, and they got up in those Sierra passes, and they got trapped. Um, Fifteen men left to try to go get help, and of the 15, only seven made it to even get help. Eight died trying to get help. Uh, they brought a rescue party back. Most of the rescue party couldn't even get in because the snow was so deep, the horses couldn't get in. They couldn't bring the provisions that they had brought because the mules couldn't get in. And so you had not only the Donner Party, but the rescuers. Long story short, they were, they were just absolutely trapped. Some of them went mad went absolutely just out of their minds. Uh, cannibalism was happening because there was no food. Uh, of that original Donner party, uh, half of them died, all because of a shortcut. Temptation in the Christian life uh, is always a shortcut. When we are tempted by the enemy, and we are tempted. When we are tempted by the enemy, he is always tempting us, and he's always tempting us with something, watch this, 
better. Better. Oh, no, I, I know you think that's the way to go, but you've gotten wrong information. This is, this is better. This has been his modus operandi from the beginning of human history. So in the garden, he tempts the woman, take this fruit. Uh, we can't eat of that fruit. God says if we eat of that tree, we'll die. What did he say? You shall not die. The enemy is always casting aspersion on what God says. He is always calling into question the truthfulness of God's word. And what he was intimating to her was, you're not going to die. Listen, you're not going to die. In fact, there's something better waiting for you if you'll go this way. It's a shortcut. It's a shortcut to better. It's, It's a shortcut to more happiness. Uh, And he's very, very subtle how he brings these temptations into our lives. Uh, He's very convincing. Um, And the thing about these shortcuts spiritually, these temptations, we, we are always enticed that it can make my life better uh, than it is right now. Um, flip over to Psalm 19, please, verse 13. Whenever, and see, this, this shortcut, it's not an actual trail to be specific, because what it is, it's a, can I say this, a, um, you know, guys who are in the desert for a long, long time, and haven't had water, what happens to them? Suddenly they see water. They see water that isn't there. That's called a mirage. The the temptations that Satan brings to us as we're following the Lord, these temptations that always promise better, they're mirages. You see? Oh, man, I remember, you know, my wife and I, we've been married, and we've just never really gotten along. Yeah, I know, we both know the Lord, and yeah, and... But I, I just can't take this anymore. I just can't take it. I just can't take it. And, um, you know, I've actually met this, this gal at work. And hmm. Well, let me tell you what. Maybe you have met someone else, but she's a mirage. Because you're thinking, well, if I, if, if I leave my commitment here and I go here, I'm going to be happier. You're not going to be happier. I've had guys tell me this. You've seen it. I've seen it. Oh, no, no. You don't. I mean, Steve, this, this gal, she, she really understands me. How long have you known her? Three weeks? <laughs> I'm, I'm quoting verbatim stuff I've heard from guys. They're dead serious. You've known her three weeks. Yeah. I mean, she, I'm telling you, she gets me. She doesn't get you. She didn't even know you. And this isn't going to work. Oh, no, there's a connection. There may be a connection, but it's not going to work. Let me tell you something. The problem with this, so you think, so you're going to haul off and do this affair thing. Um, The the Family Life Conference that does these excellent marriage conferences, uh, years ago I taught for them, and their definition of of an affair still is in my head. 
they define an affair as an escape from reality or a search for fulfillment outside the marriage. So when I have a guy say, oh yeah, this gal, really, she, she really understands me. How long have you known her? Three weeks. Uh-huh. Well, uh, listen, <laughs> she doesn't even know you. Uh, on this affair, you're going to, this is your mind, you're going to take off? Uh-huh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's not going to work. Well, you, I mean, how can you say that? Well, I, I, the reason I can say it is that you got to take you with you. <laughs> if you could have an affair without you going along, it might work. Now, listen, the biggest problem I have in the world is me. Not somebody else. It's me. I'm my biggest problem. I'm my biggest enemy. I've gotten myself more in trouble than anyone else has ever gotten me in trouble. It's me. And see, the problem is, I'm not thinking straight, well, I'm going to run off over here. I'm not saying other people don't have their issues and aren't difficult. We're all flawed. We're all broken up people. We all know that. See, that's a mirage. And guys are tempted with that stuff. Christian guys are tempted all of the time. Now, let's go to Psalm 19. Verse 12, David says, we're just jumping into the middle of it. He says, O Lord, who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. As we walk the trail of life, we sin. Uh, you know, we all have blind spots. We, uh, d- d- with, with our spouses, we tend to be aware of things in their lives. And, and isn't it interesting? Oftentimes, they don't see those things. Well, that's true of us, too. Everyone has blind spots. Your wife has blind spots. Your kids have blind spots. But you have blind spots. I have blind spots. We have things that we're doing that we are completely and utterly blind to, and we don't see it. But everyone else around us sees it. And David says, who can discern his heirs? Well, uh, we can't. We tend to think of ourselves higher than we should. Who can discern his heirs? He prays, Lord, acquit me, acquit me of hidden faults. The things I can't see. The, thing, the sins I've committed and I don't even realize I've committed them. Acquit me. Forgive me. You know, and you know what's great about the Lord is that he does this. When you look at 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we confess, when we're convicted about a sin, particular sin, and we confess it to the Lord, that particular specific sin, he is such a great God, he is such a great Savior, that he not only forgives us of the specific sin that we ask him to forgive, but he at the same time cleanses us from all unrighteousness. The sin we're not even aware we've committed. The sharp word that hurt our wife's heart, and we're not even aware that we said it. Because we're in the habit. But it cut and it hurt. We've got our blind spots. He's such a great Savior that when we confess the sin we know about, He just wipes the entire slate clean. Is that not amazing? It's staggering. The next verse, he says, also keep back your servant 
from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Keep me back from presumptuous sins. Uh, what, what is a presumptuous sin? Well, a presumptuous sin is when you go ahead and presume. You presume on the grace of God. You, you know, here's what a presumptuous sin is. You are fully aware that the action you are about to take is um, against the Word of God. And we've all done this. We, we are aware that, I'm, that, that we have a temptation, and we are drawn to the temptation because we do think it's better, and it's attractive, and it will make us happy. And so a presumptuous sin is a sin where a Christian willfully and knowingly defies God's word. That's a presumptuous sin. He asks the Lord here, also keep me back from presumptuous sins. Watch this. Let them not rule over me. Because if we are not careful, these presumptuous sins, we can get in a habit of presuming on the grace of God. We get in a habit and we rationalize and we say, oh, I'll ask the Lord later for forgiveness. We've all done that. I will say this to you. He will forgive you, but as a child of his, he will also discipline you. That's Hebrews 12. Don't think you're going to get off without consequences because those whom the Lord loves, Hebrews chapter 12, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. That's what, that's what he does. Why? Because he loves you. And he doesn't want you to let those presumptuous sins rule over you. He wants you to grow and mature and learn how to walk in the paths of righteousness. In Psalm 23, verse 3, it says, he guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. But we are always being tempted to divert off his path and off his marked trail and to willfully and knowingly defy his word. I mentioned uh, Pilgrim's Progress last week. That's the second best-selling book of all time. John uh, Bunyan wrote that while he was in prison uh, in England over 300 years ago. In, in Pilgrim's Progress, and it's, a, um, it's an allegory about a man named Christian. He's on the wrong trail. He hears the gospel, begins to follow Christ, gets on the narrow road. Okay. At a certain point, he comes into this valley. And in this valley, there is a wonderful spring of water, a wonderful spring. Um, this spring of water sits at the base of a very, very steep, very steep and treacherous hill that is called the Hill of Difficulty. Well, nobody wants to climb the Hill of Difficulty. But the Christian life is a difficult life. Jesus said, in the world, you'll have tribulation. In the world, you'll have difficulty. Uh, but he went on and said, but be of good cheer, for I've overcome the world. Acts 14.22 says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. What are tribulations? They're difficulties. 
Notice he doesn't say through a few difficulties. He says through many. That's why John Bunyan described in the story there's a hill of difficulty. And then he went on and said, but just to the, this, this hill that nobody wants to climb, to the left of the hill of difficulty was this, you could make out this trace, this kind of a, a wisp of a, of a path. And as you looked at it from the spring, it, it, it apparently would enable you to get around the hill of difficulty and avoid it entirely. And then he noticed the same thing on the right side. There was another wisp of a, of a trail uh, a tra- yeah, remember, there's a trail in Mississippi called the Natchez Trace. It was just kind of a trace. It's kind of a wisp of a trail. So on the left, you've got a wisp of a trail. Apparently, that'll enable you to not climb the hill of difficulty. And there's another one on the right side. Bunyan called the one on the left. He called it, uh, he called it that's the path of danger. Uh, the one on the right, he called the path of destruction. They, look, they both look extremely promising. Oh, this is a, oh, they were shortcuts. Shortcuts. What I'd like to do tonight is show you three shortcuts that Christian men are often tempted to take as we're walking the trail following Christ do not be surprised if the enemy will throw these temptations at you and by the way if he tempted Jesus know that he will try to tempt you I'm not going to go into Matthew 4 tonight if I'm not mistaken that's where Chuck is going to be next But in Matthew 4, in essence, when the enemy came to Jesus, he was tempting him to take a shortcut. It's precisely what he was doing. Now, I'm going to give you three shortcuts. There are are hundreds of shortcuts he tempts us with. Uh, Quite frankly, there are thousands. He, he knows each man. He knows our soft spots. He knows our vulnerabilities. Um, um, I, I, I believe that, uh, well, you know, if you enjoy football, the higher up the ladder you go in football. Uh, and by the way, um, Jay Madden just was sharing something with me tonight that uh, the NFL just uh, sold out to a major corporation this week. I don't know if you heard this. They sold out to Nerf. (laughs) It worked, Jay. That's a good one. I like it. Nerf, you know the soft football patriots? If you don't get it, you don't get it. I totally lost my place. 
Two shortcuts. Oh, there are three short. Okay, okay, yeah. Thanks. Um, there are there are so many different shortcuts that we could take. I think the enemy, he uh, he has different strategies for different men, different personalities, different temperaments. Uh, with football, um, you talk to guys that play um, through college, and you know most of us play a little bit in high school, and then some guys go to college, some guys make it to the pros, but. Uh, the guys I've talked to that have played in the NFL, it's amazing how much time those guys spend. You think football, you think practice outside. To me, what's amazing is when you talk to them is how much time they spend inside. What are they doing? Well, they're watching film. Uh, they watch a lot of film. And uh, if, if you're on offense, uh, you're, watching, you're, you're watching the defensive schemes that Whoever you're playing on Sunday, here are the defensive schemes those guys use, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, uh, you're watching film, so you'll get to know your, point, your opponent. If you're on defense, you're looking at their offensive sets and the plays, that, you know, yeah, you get it. You're watching film to get to know your, appoint, your, your opponent. I, I have a sense that when you start following Jesus, when you become serious about the Lord Jesus Christ and you start following him, I think the enemy watches our game films. I think he starts studying us as to how he can take us down. And he devises a strategy. And he has different shortcuts that he'll present to different guys. He doesn't present the same one to the same guys all the time. But there are certain ones that are more tailor-made to our certain personalities and our weaknesses and our perceptions. Just makes sense, doesn't it? Uh, we could go over hundreds of different ones. Tonight, I just want to mention three because I think a lot of us will experience these. Uh, the, the first shortcut that I would mention to you is the shortcut of listening to the wrong advisors. Um, turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 12. All of us have people in our lives that influence us. All of us do. And we need advisors. We have financial advisors. Uh, sometimes when you're in struggling with something, go see a counselor. Um, anyway. In 1 Kings 12, we run into a king named Rehoboam. Rehoboam was, uh, he's, uh, he's not as well known because, see, after you get through Saul, the first king, and then you go to David, and then you go to Solomon, after that it gets murky. Uh, Solomon died, and his son, Rehoboam, took the position. So, 1 Kings chapter 12 his father has just died, and in fact, you can read that in 1143 of 1 Kings. Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of his father David. His son Rehoboam reigned in his place. Then Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. Okay? Um, and then what happens is, 
There are 10 tribes that live in the north. Jerusalem's down towards the southern end, the mid-range, if you will. Um, the 10 tribes of the north, and then in Jerusalem you had Judah, uh, which was the capital, and then the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, there, there's, there's going to be a split here in the nation. And it's going to be revolving around this king, Rehoboam, this young king who takes his dad's place. Uh, Solomon was the wisest man. His son, Rehoboam, was young and foolish and stupid. And something terrible is going to happen here. But what happened was in verse 4, uh, the ten tribes picked a, a leader named Jeroboam uh, to represent them. And he said, your father made our yoke hard. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke, which he put on us, and we will serve you. He said to them, depart for three days, then return to me. So the people departed. King Rehoboam, verse 6, consulted with the elders who had served his father while he was still alive, saying, how do you counsel me to answer these people? And they spoke to him, saying, now these were the older men. These were the elders. They had experience. They'd been through life. They'd seen a lot of things. Okay. They spoke to him, saying, if you will be a servant to this people today, and will serve them and grant them their petition and speak good words to them, well, they will be your servants forever. They'll love you. Show them some grace. Cut them some slack, and you'll win their hearts. That was the counsel of the older men, of the wiser men, men who had been down the trail and seen a lot of stuff. Verse 8, But he forsook the counsel of the elders, which they had given him, and consulted with the young men who grew up with him and served him. There you go. So the guys he grew up with and went to school with, and they go on spring break together, and, you know, they'd, they'd hit the pubs and all this stuff. So he said, hey, guys, here's what's going on. What do you think? Watch this. The young men who grew up with him Oh, and by the way, not only did they grow up with him, but they served him. They were part of his entourage. When he went to the clubs, they were with him. You know these guys, these, these young uh, celebrity guys? They always got an entourage. Another word for entourage is a parasite. <laughs> they got all these guys that are just blood suckers and money suckers, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. He's their paycheck. Then the young men who grew up with him spoke to him, saying, Thus you shall say to this people who spoke to you, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy, now you make it lighter for us, uh, but you shall speak to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's loins. Now, you can translate that. You know, yeah, yeah, that's, you, you know exactly what they were saying. Pretty, pretty uh, profane, pretty disrespectful of, their, of his father. Uh, hey, uh, listen, I'm tough. My little finger is uh, stronger and more powerful than my father's sexual organ is in essence what they're saying here. Yeah, that's what you say. All his buddies, that's what you say to these people. Whereas my father loaded you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, I'll discipline you with scorpions. Young, stupid, 
inexperienced. Now, there's nothing wrong with being young. We all start out young. But, um, boy, there's great wisdom in listening to those who have been down the trail before. His father had written a book to him called Proverbs. Don't know if he ever read it. He was supposed to have read it because when he ascended the throne, according to Deuteronomy 17, 17, the the new king of Israel, when he ascended the throne, had to write out for himself by hand a copy of the word of God and read it all the days of his life. I don't get the sense he did this, this young guy. His father had a gift of wisdom unlike anyone else at the time. And all the way through Proverbs, if you read each chapter of Proverbs, most of the chapters begin with, my son, my son, my son. And in Proverbs chapter 1, the very first thing he talks about, just flip over there with me, the, the very first thing he talks about to his son is choosing the wrong kind of friends. Verse 10, my son, Proverbs 1, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol. Um, We'll find all kinds of wealth. We'll fill our houses with spoil. Throw in your lot with us. We shall all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their, what? Path. From their trail. Why? Because in 18, he says, they ambush their own lives. They lie in wait for their own blood. So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. Um, All kinds of practical truth in Proverbs from Solomon to his son. We see his son not listening to wisdom, but listening to the young men. He listened to the wrong advisors, and it was a a travesty. Um, Flip over to Psalm 1, please. Psalm 1 is the introductory psalm to 150 psalms. Psalm 1, how does it start out? It starts out by saying, don't listen to the wrong advisors. That's how it begins. There are a lot of things God could have said to have kicked off psalms. Psalms and Proverbs are a part of what Bible scholars call the wisdom literature. The very first thing out of the blocks that God says in Psalms is don't listen to wrong advisors. So count on it. One of the ambushes that the enemy will try to use in your life is to get you to violate this. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit 
in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Doesn't mean you don't have a job. It doesn't mean you don't focus on other things. But it means that the word of God, you put in your heart, you put in your mind, and it's always on the back burner. It's a dedicated 24-hour fax line. It, it's always, you're, you're always connected to the Lord because you got his word in your heart. Okay? You're mindful of his word. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law he meditates day and night. Watch this. You talk about thinking about the end of the trail and what your life is like while you're on the trail. He will be like a tree, watch this, firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in a season. Its leaf doesn't wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. Verse 4, the wicked are not so. So don't listen to them. Don't listen to their counsel. Um, let me make a couple points about wrong advisors. Number one. Wrong advisors are those who are on the broad road that leads to destruction. When, when you get advice from, from someone, ask yourself, what road are they on? Are they on the narrow road following Christ? Are they men who put the word of God in their heart? Or is this guy just a, a secular man? Is he on the broad road that leads to destruction? Because if he is... If he's on the broad road that leads to destruction, um, why would you listen to him? If he can't choose his own path, if in his own life he's chosen the wrong path and he's on his way to destruction, why the heck would you listen to him? Why would you listen to someone who, who they themselves are deceived? No, no, let's hold this place here. And if I forget these other two statements in the next five minutes, I need someone to say something to me and confront me lovingly. Okay? Don't be harsh with me. I'm not sure I can take it. But, I mean, just if, if you sense that, because I want to show you something in Psalm 49. Um, flip over to Psalm 49. Now, it's not to say that there aren't men... Uh, who are gifted men that are on the wrong trail. They have certain gifts. They have certain skills that they've been given by the Lord. They have certain insights. Um, they're successful men. Uh, yeah. But they don't know Christ. And the things of God are spiritually discerned, Corinthians says. All right, now watch this. Verse 10. Uh, and Psalm 49 is really about the folly of, of trusting in riches in your life, making riches your God. Verse 10. For he sees that even wise men die. The stupid and senseless alike perish. Watch this. They leave their wealth to others. Their inner thought is that their houses are forever. And their dwelling place to all generations they have called their lands after their own names, but a man in his pomp will not endure. He is like the beast that perish. Hmm. You can think of men like this, famous men. They, they name buildings after themselves. They name estates after themselves. 
they name foundations after themselves. They contribute to buildings, even of Christian ministries, and name the buildings after themselves. Now, not everyone who does that, not everyone who does something like that, um, there, there are Christian people that build buildings and their names are on them. Okay, I'm just going to leave that alone. But I'm talking, here we have guys on the wrong trail who are deceived themselves about life. If they themselves are deceived about life and on the wrong trail and they have perceptions of their future that are untrue, why the heck would you listen to them? All right, first point about wrong advisors, they are those who are on the broad road that leads to destruction. Just know that. Secondly, wrong advisors are those who will tell you whatever you want to hear, especially if they're on your payroll. You don't need yes men. Number three, wrong advisors will influence you to rationalize your sin and go against the clear word of God. So, um, just count on it. You will encounter wrong advisors with wrong advice at key times in your life. Now, can we say this? You, gotta have, you, got, you need advisors, but you need godly advisors. Throughout Proverbs, uh, there are several Proverbs that say something along these lines. Um, in an abundance of counselors, there's wisdom. In an abundance of counselors, there's victory. Now, it's speaking of men who are following the Lord. Men who know the word, men who know the truth. Um, Proverbs thirteen twenty says, "He who walks with wise men will be wise." So make sure your counselors. We uh, I, I mentioned this. We after eighteen years, we've we've got our property up for sale, and uh, I'll be here after the service uh, taking offers. <laughs> Uh, but, but, you know, I, I, I remember when that property came up 18 years ago, just out of the blue, and it, I won't go into detail, but uh, it, just was, it just was something that was not on my radar. And obviously, we've been there all these years, and God's used it. It's been wonderful. It's been great. But I remember when this came up, I, I it just it just wasn't in my plan, and I didn't see. So I started talking with men that I knew, and I respected their walk with Christ. I respected their particular gifts. Talked with several CPAs that that specialized with for guys in ministry, and I laid it out to them. And I talked with a couple of attorneys I knew. One guy, I was getting on a plane in California. And I heard a guy say, hey, Steve. And I turned around, and there's Norm. And he says, what are you doing? And I said, I'm flying down to Orange County. He said, me too. And we were on the plane for 45 minutes. And I remember as we're talking, he's, he's a real estate attorney. And I said, hey, let me lay something out to you. 
I remember we were touching down at John Wayne Airport. He said, you know, Steve, I, I don't see any red lights. I don't see any yellow lights here. Maybe the Lord's in this, Steve. I had 11 different Christian people who I respect their counsel and advice say to me, I don't see any red flags, Steve. Perhaps the Lord's in this. And it scared me to death. And can I tell you this? The Lord has been in it. It's been a great thing. It wasn't on my radar, but it was something he wanted us to do. And he brought favor into our lives as a result of it. Uh, you got to have counselors. But make sure you got the right counselors. That's all I'm saying. And you say, Steve, you know, I came here and I thought I'd get something profound. This is so simple. Yeah. And isn't it the simple stuff that trips us up? I mean, I don't know about you. That's what gets me usually is the simple stuff. I could have had a V8. <laughs> oh, I, could have had a, I could have had a wise counselor from the scriptures. But I didn't. Oh, doggone it. Okay, we've all screwed up. But today's another day. Tomorrow's another day. So what do you do? Think, and I don't know where you are right now, what's going on in your life. But follow this. Follow this. Heed it. Keep your eyes open. Okay. Here's the second shortcut. The second shortcut, interestingly enough, is also in 1 Kings 12. Because we have talked about Rehoboam, but now we're going to switch to Jeroboam. Some of you guys, your wives are pregnant. You're thinking about names for sons. Uh, I wouldn't recommend either one of these uh, particular names for a lot of reasons. But uh, where am I going? 1 Kings 12. Okay, so he listens to the young guys instead of the wise men. And he's, yeah, I'm a hard guy. In fact, I'm going to make your life harder and tougher. You haven't seen tough yet. You know, rah, rah, rah. Verse 13, the king answered the people harshly. You know, state of the union thing here. He, he's going to let them have it. For he forsook the advice of the elders. We'll probably snip that, guys, back there. <laughs> Just kind of fell out somewhere. I don't know where that came from. The king answered the people harshly, for he forsook the advice of the elders which they had given him. And he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy. I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips. I will discipline you with scorpions. The king did not listen to the people. Watch this. It was a turn of events from the Lord that he might establish his word, because earlier through a prophet, God had said this nation's going to split. Okay, now watch this. Verse 19, uh, actually 16. When all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, saying, what portion do we have in David? In other words, Israel is, is the, the ten northern kingdom, the ten northern tribes, and they say to this guy, the nation's going to split. You're going to have the northern kingdom called Israel, and you're going to have the southern kingdom called Judah. And, and listen, uh, David united all the tribes, and Solomon sustained the, 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 the tribes. And, and for 80 years, there was unity in the nation. And in 72 hours, this guy breaks it up. So the people in the north say, hey, what, what right do we have anymore in David? This isn't what David would do, and we're out of here. Verse 19, so Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David, which is Judah, Jerusalem, to this day. So uh, 20, 
when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had come back, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. None but the tribe of Judah followed the house of David and some of the house of Benjamin, which was right to the south, right by Jerusalem. Okay, I'm not going to get into all that. Uh, and then they're going to have a war, and they're going to fight each other, and the Lord says, look at verse 24, no, you guys are going to fight each other. No. There's going to be a political division, and I don't want you fighting each other. So they don't fight each other. Verse 25. Now, here's where we're going to see the next shortcut. And let me go ahead and give it to you. This next shortcut, I don't know what else to call it except this. This is the shortcut of setting up your own brand of Christianity. Let me show you what happened. 25. So the nations politically divide. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. Verse 26. Jeroboam said in his heart, now watch this. Now the kingdom will return to the house of David. So he's got these tribes, he's got the northern kingdom, and suddenly one day, nobody comes to him. There, there's no rebellion, he doesn't get emails, but basically, in his own heart, this thought comes to him, now the kingdom will return to the house of David. And if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord of Jerusalem, because three times a year all the men would go to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices and worship, if, if these men go to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord of Jerusalem and the heart of this people, uh, then the heart of the people will return to their Lord, even to Rehoboam, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. This guy, just, this guy is a panic attack out of nowhere. Now, it just suddenly enters his mind. I want to know where it came from. You know exactly where it came from. This is a temptation. This is a wrong thought. And so he is suddenly put in a position of fearing what doesn't exist. It's an imaginary fear, but it's a temptation. And the fear that is put in his heart is, hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Yeah, we've got, we're up here now and we've got our own deal. But this is a political thing, but God hasn't taken away the worship. So these guys are going to go down to worship. And they go down to worship, and they're going to see their friends. And they're going to suddenly, Rehoboam, I know he's going to win them over. And what's going to happen is then they're going to come back and turn on me, and they're going to kill me. He just made this up. But as a result of giving in to the fear and not thinking, let's go on with this. So the king consulted. Watch this. And he comes up with his own brand. I'm going to come up with my own worship. So the king consulted and made two golden calves. Well, you know, that didn't work the first time. Two golden calves. First time there was a golden calf, Moses was on the mount with the Lord for 40 days receiving the law. The commandments that God wrote with his own hand, he comes down and these people are in chaos and sexual orgies around this golden calf. <laughs> and that's this guy's pattern. So he's going to come up with his own brand. The king consultant made two golden calves and he said to them, it's too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel. That, watch this, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. Yeah, and how'd that go for you? Because when, when that sexual orgy and anarchy broke out, the Spirit of God started moving and started killing people. Because it was absolute anarchy. 
absolute, absolute lewdness and sexual anarchy. Anything went, anything was legal. It was absolute lawlessness. I just read this week that an application has been made in New York by an 18-year-old girl for a marriage license with her biological father. Well, you got a problem with that? How can you be so intolerant? But what's your problem, man? She's got every right. He's got every right. Mm -hmm. So um, he sets up two golden calves. He set one in Bethel, and he put the other in Dan. Now, Dan's way up in the north by Mount Hermon. Uh, it's the northern border. It's a pretty good trek down to Jerusalem. So, you know, there's a nice, I'm sure he built, you know, something in, in uh, up there in Dan, it's by Mount Hermon, it's snow-capped peak, you know, probably a ski lodge kind of thing, youth camp kind of thing. You can take your family, and it'll be really neat, we'll have worship bands. Um, I don't know what he did, but whatever he could do to distract them, I just don't want you going to Jerusalem. He makes this all up. And then he puts one in, in Bethel, which was really smart, I'll tell you why. Because, you see, he was afraid they'd go to Jerusalem. Well, Bethel was just 11 miles north of Jerusalem. On the main highway, the main drag, the interstate, you, 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 you get to Bethel, 11 miles, Jerusalem. So what does he do? He's got a golden calf. You know, he built a gas station and a restaurant and, you know, a water slide and all this. And he's got this thing because, you know, you need to get off. Take this off ramp right here, Bethel. I don't want you going 11 miles down there. Verse 30, now this thing became a sin for the people who went to worship before the one as far as Dan, and he made houses in high places, and he made priests among all the people who were not of the sons of Levi. He instituted a feast in the eighth month, like the feast which is in Judah. He just counterfeited the whole thing. We just shake our heads, but I see Christian guys, quote-unquote Christian guys all the time that do this. They make up their own brand of Christianity. All the time I see it. All the time. We were having a brief conversation just before we got going. The gentleman was saying, you know, I've lived in Dallas 45 years. You know how many well-known pastors I've seen go down sexually? Well, it's just not Dallas. It's everywhere. Everywhere. I remember doing a conference. I was a How old was I, 40, 41? I'd been invited to this big conference, point man had just come out. I was there with Dr. Hendricks and he was speaking and I just remember kind of thinking, I'm in over my head here, this is unbelievable. And I was seated at dinner next to this guy who, I read his books. I read his books on discipleship. I mean, I'd read them and I'd studied them and I'm sitting next to him. Real nice guy, you know, we're talking. He's getting ready, he's leaving from there, going to somewhere in Asia and his wife's there. You know, and I'm asking him all these questions. The guy's very connected, very, you know, sharp guy. And within two weeks, I read that uh, uh, he's had an ongoing affair with eight women in his church. I just talked to the guy. 
And it had been going on for years and years. Not one, not two, eight. You know what he did? He Jeroboamed. He just set up his old brand. For whatever reason. I'm watching a guy right now. We've known him and his wife and kids for 20 years. For 20 years. And uh, he, he's, he's Joe Christian. But when he travels to this city, what's come out, he's had it covered for a long time. He's got a gal in that town. Denies it, denies it. No, absolutely not. Can't believe anyone would ever think such a thing. Turns out there's another one over here. I mean, he's involved. Years ago, in the mid-90s, I was in a, I would speak often in a particular state, pretty close to Texas. Did a lot of events, did a lot of men's conferences. I just did. Every time I do a conference in that state, I'd see this same, uh, th this is a different guy I'm talking about now. I would see a guy and he was either putting it on or he was on the advisory board or he, he, he was there. I don't, care, I don't care what town, he was just there. Very involved. Met his wife, met his family. Yeah, he's just really excited about the things of God. You know, God, you know he's, he's into it. Joe Christian, Joe Baptist, Joe Evangelical. He's Joe everything. Joe Bible. Had a fish thing on his car. And I'll never forget his, uh, getting a call from a lady one night in hysterics. And it took me a while to figure out who she was because she was just brokenhearted. And it was his wife letting me know that I might run into him because he had just moved to Dallas and uh, left her and the girls and uh, was living in Dallas with a stripper. How sad. He just Jeroboamed. He just made up his own brand of Christianity. So I want to ask this question of you, because I'm going to tell you something. I ask it of me. Whenever I teach on this stuff, see, these, these are shortcuts, and these shortcuts, somehow we rationalize them and we defend them and these shortcuts are ambushes we're all tempted uh, before I teach on this stuff I, I really ask the Lord to help me because it's so easy to teach and not keep your eyes peeled uh, you, you know what I'm saying I gotta guard my own heart for, for, for out of it flows the well springs of life so where are you on the trail? What's going on in your life? And why would, this, why would this guy move in with a stripper? Because somehow he believed that was better. How could that possibly turn out well? I never saw him again, never talked with him again. I mean, you talk about a road to destruction. How tragic, how sad. I'm out of time, but I want to mention one other ambush that I, I, I just want to mention it, and I want to, 
th this may surprise you, but I want to give it to you. Because I, I see this going on with a lot of Christian guys uh, as we get older. And I would call this the shortcut of getting out of the race too early. And I would ask you, I'm not going to spend much time on this. I would ask you to turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, in the fall semester, we talked about finishing strong and the Christian life is a race, and it's a long race and all of that. Uh, well, when you're on a race, you're on a trail. You're on a path, okay? So, you know, we're just kind of switching metaphors here a little bit. But I, I think there is a shortcut of getting out of the race too early. And let's take a look at what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy. And note, if you would, chapter 4. Let's pick it up in verse 5. As for you, Timothy, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist. He says, fulfill your ministry. Hey, uh, what's your ministry? Uh, most of you, you're not on a church staff, you're not a pastor, but you have a ministry. You're following the Lord and uh, your, your wife, your kids, it's a ministry. Some of you guys, the uh, Lord brought you out of addictions and some of you guys meet with guys struggling with addictions. That's your ministry. That's great. That's tremendous. Uh, some of you guys work with special needs kids. I think of John Knowlton back there. John drives a, a bus, school bus for special needs kids. He, I, when he tells me about it, his eyes light up. He loves those kids. He loves them. And I, I've never met the kids. I know they love him. That's his ministry. You see? You got a ministry. You got a full-time job and all that. But you got, you, you're touching somebody's life as you follow Christ. Okay, now watch this. Paul says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Here's what I see, a particular temptation in American culture. I see that there is an idol as we get older in life. We are tempted with the idol of idleness. I-D-L-E-N-E-S-S. -S. And it is this idol of retirement. Uh, it's become a, it's become a, a god. Now, now let's, let's be fair here and let's be honest here. As we get older, we, don't, we go through life, we get older, we get miles on the tires, and we worked hard, we put in a lot of years, and, you know, paid money in the... And, and so, great, it, you can retire. Great, but don't retire from life. You got to do more. You got to do more than, uh, than have fun. You're a man of God. You're called to contribute. You're called to be productive. You're called to make a difference. You're called to influence. But the American, and I'm walking a fine line here, but you understand what I say. We're talking about this thing where you work hard, you put all your money, you just work your tail off putting all this money into these funds. Just put your money. Why? So then I can just do nothing and have fun and do whatever I want to do. That's a, pretty, that's a pretty lousy life, quite frankly. 
Go back and read Psalm 49 again. It's the folly of trusting in riches. Now, it doesn't mean, so you get older and you can retire, all right, but you got to retire, retire, but retire to something. Now be productive over here. You got an interest here? You got an interest here? Go serve. Now, you don't have to do it 80 hours a week or 100 hours a week, but be productive. The older men are to teach the younger men. Look for a slot and serve. Look for a slot where you can minister. Might be a grandson. Might, and some of you you, you, you were raising your grandkids. That's your ministry. Tremendous. It's hard. It's difficult. It's exhausting. It was exhausting when you were 25. And now you're 65. God bless you. Those kids will call, rise up and call you blessed. All I'm saying is, guys, we got to be careful of this because this is pervasive. It's pervasive. I read over Christmas break, I read some biographies of Christian leaders. Um, there was a guy named Charles Simeon in the 1700s into the 1800s who pastored Trinity Church at Cambridge. Uh, very um, influential preacher, dynamic preacher, brilliant guy, loved the Lord. Um, interesting thing about his life, at a certain point, he, uh, he lost his voice and he became very weak and sickly. And uh, it was a struggle for him to minister. He was probably in his late 40s. This went on for years and years until he was 60 and he was in a carriage going to Scotland and he suddenly just felt something go through him and he was healed of his affliction. Got up to speak and his voice was strong and just, I mean, it was over. It was done with. And he felt like, as he was thinking this through, he as a, as a young man, for some reason, he set this goal in his life. And he wasn't married. He didn't have kids. He, was, he came from a very wealthy family. He gave all the money away to his brother. He lived in just a, a couple of rooms in Cambridge. That was it. But he had this thing in his mind that at 60, he was going to step out of ministry and enjoy life. And when he hit 60, he'd been afflicted for, I think, 17 years. When he hit 60, the Lord touched him. Just a, he didn't even pray for healing. He just, Lord, just did it. And he's sorting that through. And he felt like, he felt like, he didn't hear any voice. He just felt like the Lord was saying, for you to step aside at 60 was your plan, but it wasn't mine. In fact, I'm going to give you strength. I'm going to give you extra strength. I'm going to triple your strength. I'm going to quadruple your strength. He just sensed that. And he ministered almost another 20 years with more power than he ever had before. Isn't that interesting? He was going to hang it up at 60. Now, I got, I got much more for you than this. All I'm saying, guys, is let's be alert. There's nothing greater than being used by God. You don't have to be on a big platform because in the kingdom of God, there are no little people and there are no little places. It's all important. Jesus sees it all. Let's pray. Father, make us mindful and make us aware. We want to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. 
We want to put on the full armor of God that, so we can discern the strategies of the enemy. Keep us close to you. Help us. Enable us. For the man who's here tonight and has realized that he is on a shortcut, headed the wrong direction, by your spirit, cause him, by an act of his will, to turn and repent and run the other way and run to you. Save us from ourselves and save us from the shortcuts. In Jesus' name, we ask, amen.